0: Hello and welcome to Get Flushed, the world's favourite sanitation podcast. I'm Pete. Over the last two episodes, Get Flushed has focused on the response that portable restroom operators can provide during times of emergency and disaster. In episode five, Dave Andre spoke about his experience with Mr. John at Ground Zero following the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center in New York in 2001. And in episode six last week, I pulled together some of the important steps that operators can take to prepare their businesses to supply and service restrooms when that emergency demand occurs. This week, I'd like to welcome Dave back onto the show to talk through some of the practical lessons that we've both learned from responding to disaster and emergency situations. Now, before we get going, I have to share a disclaimer. I'm not a restroom provider, I don't have any units for sale or hire, and I don't have any financial interest in any restroom operations in New Zealand or elsewhere. And I've said that because this week we're going to talk about pricing. I'm well aware that many jurisdictions have very strict rules about anti-competitive behaviour such as bid rigging, monopolies, price fixing and market allocation. And obviously I want to be very careful that I do not contravene any of those laws. But at the same time, there are a few general considerations about the cost of business that do affect pricing during an emergency, and I'd really want to explore those today. I'm not going to make any recommendations about the prices that a restroom operator should charge, and I'm not going to suggest anything about prices that restroom operators should expect to pay their suppliers. I'm not going to discuss discounts, rebates, or incentives, and I'm not going to encourage anyone to engage in any activities that could be perceived as price rigging or market allocation. No listeners are under any obligation to follow my advice, and every restroom operator listening to this episode must make their own decisions about pricing. G'day, Dave. Welcome back to the show. How are you?
1: Hello, Pete. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. If there's a bit of background noise, it's because we're in the middle of a big rainstorm again and the caravan's quite echoey. But hopefully we'll get through without too much interference. I don't hear a thing. Are you back at home? I understand you've been to Vail.
1: Yes, I am back in Houston and um, I enjoyed uh, a few really nice days last week up in Vail, Colorado at the Service Corps Pro Leadership Summit. And they had uh, invited about 10 different companies and about 25 people that attended for a pro leadership summit.
0: Has there ever been anything like that before?
1: No, never, it was the first ever.
0: What sort of stuff did you get up to?
1: They started off with some good fly fishing and uh, I had never been fly fishing, so I was quite excited and we just showed up. They had the waders, the boots and the guide.
0: Oh, you're making me jealous, Dave.
1: I caught my first rainbow trout, it was amazing.
0: Did you keep it or did it go back into the river?
1: Yeah, back in the river, everything was catch and release.
0: Yeah, good, man. I like that. So then the conference, was it seminar-based or presentations or a bit of everything?
1: Wednesday afternoon, they then had two sessions. Uh, One was on culture and people. You know, How do you attract good people? How do you keep good people? With the heart of that being the culture of your business and how you take care of your employees, make them feel useful and wanted and and appreciated. A really, really good couple-hour discussion on that. Followed by the one that I led, which was about being ready for sudden surges of need for your inventory. So whether that's disaster response, uh, crisis management, hurricane, COVID-19, and then how is that impacted by your supply chain strategy? So that was a really good discussion. And then uh, we finished it up Thursday morning with a, a discussion on everything technology and what kind of technology are you using? What are the things that you're missing? It basically was a good eight, ten hours of amazing in session discussions and then of course lots of other side conversations, whether it was at dinner or cocktail hour or just out late at night. I've been in this business thirty years. It was the first time I think any conference like that had ever been held. And uh I would say to a person that was there, they got so much out of it and want to do it again.
0: Well, hats off to Service Corps for putting that together. Some of the themes there will fit in really well with this episode, which, as you know, is a follow-up to your very successful 9-11 episode. I have to say that's become the most listened to episode in the podcast's history.
1: Wow, that's amazing. I I think that's probably because of the topic, not necessarily my contribution, but I was happy to participate in it. And being the guy that was on the ground, I was able to share some of uh, what we did and, and some of the impact it had on our organization. And of course, on supporting the disaster and the recovery.
0: Well, we've had some really heartfelt feedback on that. Some from emergency workers who said that they were very grateful that Mr. John supplied the restrooms. Others from casual listeners who've just said, "Thank, please thank Dave for me for sharing that story. And I know you've had a few messages come through as well.
1: You know, I, I don't seek any sort of credit. I was there. I responded but so many pros across America during COVID and other hurricane disasters have all stepped up. Um, there's a guy, Sean Petro, out of uh, Ocean Springs, uh, Mississippi, who's right now uh, getting up at three or four in the morning every morning, pumping out shower trailers and restroom trailers. And he's a small pro in Louisiana, but he stepped up and he got his trucks together. And he's, he's doing just what I did for the Ida response. So I, I think the industry is blessed. I think the country is blessed. And I think this is true around the world that portable restroom operators are the type of people that don't want a lot of credit, they'll stand up, they'll do whatever's necessary to get it done and to provide basically dignity for people you know, using a clean bathroom.
0: Well, hats off to Sean for doing that work. And as you say, I know he's not a very large operator by any means, but he's in the mix and he's providing that emergency response. And it just goes to show you don't need to be an overly big company to play an active role in this, do you, Dave?
1: No, not at all. You can be tiny, you can be medium size or big. I remember when we responded to Katrina, which was a hurricane down in Louisiana that everyone remembers, because we had some of the things that we're going to discuss here. But we were able to bring down 12 service trucks. We had six branches at the time. So, two service trucks we were able to peel off, bring down, set up a camp, and start cleaning toilets on a daily basis. We also brought down two 5000s and a couple jet backs. The, the other companies that responded were Service Sanitation out of Chicago and CNL Sanitation out of Ohio. At the time, that was Rich Vector and his team and Tom Stang, who still owns CNL Sanitation. And they all responded. And I think that service sanitation has responded to every disaster out of Chicago down on the Gulf Coast, just because if you get good at it, you discover that you're able to do more than you ever thought you could. And then obviously it's good for business.
0: In last week's episode, I talked through the five R's and particularly the reduction and the readiness strategies that businesses can use to prepare for an emergency or a large scale response. And I think you're absolutely right that once you've done it, once you build up an expertise, the only way you can gather that expertise is by being on the ground and doing it, isn't it?
1: A lot of people will realise or if they imagine that a disaster response out of their reach, it's more than likely because they don't have any direct one-on-one relationships with the people responding. However, those pros that have those relationships with the disaster response companies, the people that are renovating the nursing home, renovating the apartment complex, fixing people's houses, if they've got a business relationship direct and they provide good service, they will understand that no matter what they have in extra inventory and staff, It's not enough. And then what I always encourage pros to do is reach out to your competitors for help. And when a disaster happens, all the competitive barriers drop. You just work with one another to get the toilets, the fence, the dumpsters delivered and get them on a more frequent service than you've ever seen, typically daily for sinks and toilets. And you could be flipping a dumpster three or four times a day uh, in certain situations. So It is an opportunity to capture business revenue and provide a very essential, meaningful service if you're willing to dip your toe in the water and respond to a disaster.
0: Just an offshoot discussion from that, Dave. Have you come across any restroom companies that only specialize in large scale response, ones that perhaps don't do your routine Monday to Friday construction or domestic supplies?
1: Yeah, I don't know of any. You know, United States Services is massive. They're a huge disaster response, but they've got a huge core business of routes, construction routes and special events. Texas Outhouse is another very large one here in Houston. They do 35,000 unit services a week. Uh, they have a huge trailer fleet. And what's interesting about them is they have a limit on how much they can do in a disaster because they still have to satisfy their normal customers' needs for service, which is a constant challenge for any pro responding. I remember Ryan Granger who I heard first through your podcast and then Ryan and I hooked up and I helped him with one of the disaster responses. And he finally had to say enough, I I, I can't do anymore. So I encourage every pro to be prepared to be challenged, be prepared to jump through hoops, but then also be okay with saying, okay, I've had enough. I, I can't do anymore because everyone still needs to find the balance with your normal routes, your normal business, and then being ready with extra equipment, extra trucks, extra people to respond to the disaster. But no, I I don't know of any company that just does disaster response.
0: You're absolutely right on that. Be prepared to say no, Dave, because at some point the disaster response will be over. We've seen it, you know, even after all these years at 9-11, at some point everyone will have done all of the work and they'll pack up and leave. Mm -hmm. And then if you've abandoned your core business, you've got to go back to the start and rebuild all of that. So if you can balance both of them, that would be a very prudent strategy for an operator to adopt. And I don't think you stop
1: your normal business. You have to figure out a way to keep doing your normal business. And then however you're deciding to grow your business, you should have people on the bench. You should have extra toilets and sinks in your float. Like, what do I have available if I got a call for a special event this weekend? How many either tens of toilets or hundreds of toilets could I deliver for a weekend during a normal session? And your float is what you have available. Your extra trailers, your extra toilets, your extra sinks, your extra holding tanks, and that that risk you took to have a few extras is actually what enables you to take advantage of when a disaster strikes. So if you think about COVID, anyone that thought they had too many sinks was wrong because they still don't have enough sinks. Now sinks are the hottest thing since sliced bread and they're usually on two and three times a week service. So those people with sinks when COVID happened they were able to respond and meet the demand and then all of your suppliers will tell you that they've never sold as many sinks as they have since COVID started.
0: The upswing in sinks, it's been an incredible grand shift in the way the industry's worked really.
1: Yeah, on industry shift, I think that without criticizing it, they have traditionally undervalued what the services they're providing. So you have the normal situation where you've got a couple of small pros that are just grabbing for the lowest price just to get the work. But the lowest price doesn't always let you support your team with good health insurance, good maintenance and repair, good health benefits, all all that sort of stuff. The thing that happens in a disaster is that it's a supply and demand situation and the ability to deliver. And the people that are responding are under a time demand that they need to get things repaired. They need to get it taken care of. And the insurance companies are paying or FEMA is paying, and the rates they're willing to pay are far greater than what we normally charge for what we do. So a typical monthly rate for a restroom trailer, for example, could end up being even more than that for a weekly rate. Not only last two or three weeks, but not having those bathrooms during those two or three weeks is what causes the demand to go through the roof. I remember when uh, Ike and Gustav happened, I brought 84 shower trailers out of the Northeast down to the Houston market, Galveston, Houston, because they were needed. I mean, 84 shower trailers. That's a lot of shower trailers. And that was back in 08, 09. In today's market, there's probably three times as many shower trailers, but what's interesting is, it's still not enough shower trailers.
0: In an emergency response situation, the demand just goes up and up and up. Yeah. If you've got the materials and the assets on hand and you can deploy, then you'll definitely be in the mix because everybody needs it yesterday. The people haven't got time in emergencies to wait. They want it on site and available at the earliest opportunity because it's a crunch situation, isn't it?
1: It is crunch time. And the other thing I would encourage all pros to consider is when you put toilets and sinks out, put them on daily service. Because how do you route a couple toilets on once a week, a couple toilets on twice a week, a couple toilets on three times a week. They all go on daily service because most toilets that get deployed, let's say 10 go to a site, they end up getting used by way more people than what the person sized it up for 10 for because there, there aren't just bathrooms around. So people will stop and use the bathroom and they end up filling up and then you get the request, oh, I need more service. So I encourage pros to go on daily service, and do at least a one or two week minimum and then bill weekly thereafter.
0: That was one of the biggest problems during the earthquakes here in New Zealand, that the toilets were delivered to site, but then not cleaned regularly enough. And I think that needs a real mind shift in the operator's mind and then in the FEMA or the emergency management people's mind to understand that the last thing you can afford during a serious incident like an earthquake or a flood is a, an outbreak of cholera or some other terrible disease caused by poor sanitation.
1: But what I would tell you is it's actually simpler than that. What we allow, we teach. Just tell them, we will put these on daily service with a two week minimum, and then it'll be weekly thereafter. And everybody you speak to will go, okay, send them. Because they're in the midst of a different side of the crisis, they just need bathrooms. That may be new to a pro to think like that, but you're actually offering the solution to the other problem you just mentioned, and so it leapfrogs the situation and is the right recommendation, daily service.
0: Well, it is. And, and I remember talking to an emergency manager on the ground during the earthquakes who said to me, listen, these toilets are causing dramas that I'm too busy to deal with. Sort it out. So if the restroom operator takes the lead and puts them on daily service, that is no longer a drama or an issue for the emergency managers, is it?
1: That's exactly the case. And I guess my comments here are more to educate pros that might not have ever experienced it. During COVID, I got a, I got a call from the Navy, a, a guy I had done a bunch of fleet weeks for back in, at Mr. John from, 06, from 1997 to 06, and he couldn't find 275 sinks for the naval base. I called the person that I thought had the sinks. They said, Dave, that's crazy. These people don't realize it. It's one sink per 100 people. So they need to reevaluate what they need while well, the spec actually said one sink for 150 sailors they actually had considered it and they still needed 275 sinks and this guy had called everybody in the business he called all the people that Mr. John everywhere else and i, I got to call on my old cell phone that says dave if anyone can find them you can find them and sure enough i found 275 sinks in california i had them ready to ship across to virginia norfolk virginia and then i ended up needing to get them serviced now He decided to go with every other day service. So it's not everything has to be on daily, but I would tell you nothing less than every other day. And as it turns out, the guy who originally denied said he couldn't do it, ended up filling the order and put the 275 out and and put them on every other day service. And it lasted for two and a half months. So imagine that, you know, to your business, to your revenue, to what you're doing. That's the kind of thing that whether you're going to do it or not actually happens And there are many pros out there that have figured out a way to step up and get it done.
0: Well, we certainly experienced that with the earthquakes, that we were sending trucks out four days a week to the earthquake zone, and it became a major priority. And in fact, we probably had more toilets along that stretch of coast than we had in town, just because of the number of recovery workers and clearance. Like, the scale of the landslip was incredible. One of the issues there is just the toll on staff, that it becomes a wearisome grind if you're not very careful. So having enough staff to be able to fulfill that without burning them out and without putting them in jeopardy for their own physical and mental health is really important too, isn't it?
1: Well, what's interesting about this is, you know, a lot of people refer to army units or going into a foxhole and you're in a tough situation. As long as the leadership isn't sitting on the sidelines and is actually participating. So when nine eleven happened the chairman of the company. So this is Mitch Weiner and Mr. John, Dave Dam, Gary Weiner, myself, everybody participated. Everyone jumped in and did the work. So as long as your organization is ready to do that. Now, what's interesting about that is it was like being in a foxhole together. So you actually get some invigoration. You get some, some camaraderie. You get some, my gosh, look what we're accomplishing. And that's, I, I would say, what you might not imagine, but that's part of the thing that carries you through the experience. Everyone steps up. When we did Katrina, all the guys volunteered to go down. We, we asked for volunteers. And they all wanted to stay longer than two weeks because they were loving the overtime. But we sort of found the balance of knowing that two weeks was probably the limit and then needed to go home and be with mom and get back to the routine. So we would put them on a two-week on one week off and then come back for another two weeks. So you have to find the balance of your team, of your people, and also ask for people like what they wanna do. Like don't force anyone to do anything, ask for the volunteers. And sometimes those volunteers that step up and go the extra mile, they bring the others along. And then as an overall team accomplishment, you just need to show tremendous appreciation, tremendous recognition, and of course, there's no driver that doesn't mind making some overtime.
0: I made the point in last week's episode that it's really important to involve the admin team and the sales team in this because it can become almost isolating for them. If they're in the office and they're not involved and there's all this other drama and people perceive it as high action, really important stuff. Very important for me to involve everyone in the company and make sure that they all feel part of that combined effort.
1: Without a doubt, Pete, that is uh, that is gospel right there, what you just said. And those pros listening that have actually done this, they're doing exactly what you just said and they're ready to step up next time when something else happens. Because it is an invigorating thing to your organization and you do discover that you can accomplish way more than what you ever thought you could do. I'll give you another example. When Obama got elected, C3 Presents came to town to set up all the inauguration festivities and they put out a request for 8,000 portable toilets and 250 ADAs. I know for a fact that is the most toilets ever requested in America for anything.
0: That's a crazy number of toilets, Dave.
1: It is a crazy number of toilets. And I, at the time, was a consultant to Don's Johns in in Washington, D.C., and I was able to help them secure that contract. And they were like, how are we going to do this? I said, well, we've delivered 100 toilets. We've delivered 200 toilets. It's the same thing. You're just going to do it a whole bunch of times.
0: Just scale. Yeah.
1: It's just scale. And then uh, sure enough, they pulled it off. They had to rely upon some of their competitors for service, for delivery. And then uh, I think we pulled toilets in from like five states away to make it happen.
0: You actually stumble into another beneficial outcome here, which is you upskill your team for your future non-emergency work. So where you have your Christmas fairs or your state fair or ball games where you need to deploy in large numbers, the expertise that you develop, and that's a two-way street because you can practice on those non-emergency events for the time when it's actually matters against the clock. There's a huge amount of tacit knowledge comes through there, and it builds up and builds up, and you just grow your future capacity through doing.
1: Without a doubt. The, the other one that comes to mind in my time at Mr. John is when the, the U.S. Open, the golf U.S. Open with the USGA came to Bethpage, the first public golf course where they held a U.S. Open. It was 600 plastics, 42 restroom trailers, 150 holding tanks, 200 sinks. And Mr. John and our team, we, of course, we had, we had a bunch of branches. We pulled that off without any other pros being involved. Now, obviously, that was after 9-11, so we had the momentum of, of knowing what we could do at 9-11. And we're like, yeah, let's do it. Then the USGA asked us to go to Chicago the next year to do it in between that and coming back to Shinnecock, which is on the east end of Long Island, which we got as well. And we took our entire crew to Chicago and then we collaborated with the service sanitation. There was like 16 toilets on three times a week service for like eight weeks before the uh, event started. So we had service sanitation handle that. And then we brought in another 600 plastics, all those restroom trailers, uh, and we brought out our service drivers, and we actually did the event in Chicago. We probably couldn't have done that if we hadn't done nine eleven and the O two 2 US Open. So everything you stretch yourself with is only going to strengthen you as you move forward to realize those dreams of the owner of being a bigger
0: company. There's two elements in there. One is that the company builds up tacit knowledge. And the second is that that tacit knowledge is actually held by individuals within the company. And that's sometimes a fine line, because my experience, certainly post-earthquakes, is that it took such a toll on many of the staff that they ended up moving on to other roles. So two years, three years after the event, most of the crew had left to go to other jobs. And I think that's possibly a pattern that you'll see quite often when large-scale incidents of that nature have occurred.
1: I was the one that initiated and helped write the playbook at Mr. John in 19 began in 1997. It took us about six months to write it, but that playbook lives to this day at Mr. John. And so I encourage all pros as a way to mitigate against what you just said is that your business needs to be giving you more life, not sucking the life out of you. And that comes from systems of procedures and processes and standard operating procedures probably those people that moved on were overtaxed. They got overworked rather than there being a support team of three people know how to do every job in the business. That way, if someone's sick, the job still gets done. And there's a team effort on how to do every function inside the business.
0: I think you're right. I think that's probably a reflection of the fact that there weren't processes like that in place at the time, that all of the effort went into the emergency response. And it was only afterwards when I sat back and analysed what had happened in some detail at my leisure that those pieces started to fit together. So perhaps one of the lessons for this episode is that if companies can do that work now and be aware that this is likely to be a factor They can take steps to make sure that those processes are in place before it happens.
1: You know, it applies to everything, how you write an order, how you turn in an order, how you take a customer complaint call, how you route, how you confirm all your work orders to make accurate billing happen. If you can control accurate billing, you have less time spent on inaccurate bills, which just suck the lifeblood out of a company because the bill's not right. So it's all integrated. It's all there. And I think a lot of pros get it in the business. They oversimplify the processes and then they they find out that they oversimplified it because all of a sudden someone quits or someone leaves and you're not getting the system done right.
0: Nobody knows how it fits together. Yeah, I think a lot of companies would identify with that, that Billy Joe used to do this that, or the other, and now all of a sudden he or she's not there, and everyone's scratching their head trying to figure out how it works. Well, you can do all of that work in downtime to make sure that you are bulletproof. And the one thing that I know from those emergency situations is that they are incredibly chaotic, Dave, that it is very fast-moving and very stressful. And if you've got some structure in place before it happens, that whole process becomes much easier to manage.
1: I also think that it requires the owners and the managers and the leaders to constantly be open to what you can improve. Don't think you know it all. You need to constantly be reevaluating what you're doing and is it working well? Is it producing the outcome we thought it would produce? And if it's not, then we need to change some of our behavior and some of our processes to make it better. And if you live in that sort of framework of mind, you'll be less daunted by a disaster and the mayhem that it creates because it's actually a teacher. It actually can show you how to do things better.
0: One thing I'd just like to go back into is pricing approaches, because you said earlier that pricing for emergency response is not the same as regular routine. I know that you're a great fan of an all-inclusive price structure for these types of situations.
1: So typically, most people don't want to know about itemized pieces of the billing. So when you give a rate for, say, a, a shower trailer for the week, and if you can imagine whatever you would charge for a month, you're going to charge in a week, that's inclusive of services and rental. And then delivery has to be a separate charge you always charge for delivery and pickup and the first invoice. And that's based upon how far it needs to come, realizing that it may be coming from three states away. Your delivery and setup pricing is always fungible to the exact situation you're responding to. But let's just say you charge, I'm just going to say $2 a month for a restroom trailer, which is a ridiculous number. I'm not trying to use numbers. And you end up charging that per week. It needs to be all inclusive of what the client needs. And it needs to include... On a restroom trailer, it could be three times a week service. So breaking out all the items and then not telling them how much they need and then charging them later causes a problem for the customer. Think in terms of if I'm going to put a toilet out and service it seven times, what's my rate? And it's probably more than what you typically divide your four week rental rate. So that, you know, let's just say you charge $80 for once a week service over four weeks, that's $20 a service. Well, in a disaster, it could be 40 or 50 or $60 a service seven times that one week. That's what enables you to find the staff, find the trucks, have the extra equipment to get the work done. It's not meant to be done for free. It's meant to be done to give your business a return.
0: Absolutely. And I think one of the keys there is knowing the actual real cost to you as the operator of providing that emergency response. And for me, that includes covering your Monday to Friday jobs. Yes. If you're needing to pay overtime or bring extra staff in or lease extra trucks, you've got to factor that into the cost of the response to the client. You have to.
1: Yes, absolutely. What I would tell you is if you don't do what we're suggesting, some other pro near you is going to do it. And you'll be amazed at what they charged and what they got. But also, they're using an aggressive approach to make sure sanitation is not a distraction, which is why we say everyday service. Because who can predict how how many times it's going to get used? And who wants to go through the call of, well, the unit's full or it stinks or I need more service? That's just a distraction in the middle of a disaster.
0: The other angle that I think is really important is keeping an eye on demand as it starts to reduce and peter out towards the end of the job because I've certainly seen a a few operators maintain the same number of toilets and the same levels of service all the way through the job and then the hiring client gets upset because they think they've been oversupplied. So it's really important to maintain those lines of communication for me, that you talk to the site manager or the scene manager or the recovery manager, and you actually work on a diminishing scale as appropriate for the scale of the response as it winds down.
1: Absolutely. And, and that means you need to have boots on the ground. You need to have staff there checking in. United Rentals is known for this in the industry, and, and United Rentals is a $10 billion rental company. But one of the things that they're known for is helping their clients take their equipment off rent sooner.
0: That's really important to do that.
1: If you have that mentality, I I only want you to have what what we're providing you as long as you need it. And as soon as you don't need it, we're ready to pick it up. And if you come at it with that approach, you'll never get caught on the other side of taking advantage of a client because you left the units out there too long.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important because, you know, that people will realise that they're paying more for the units than they would if they're on a 20-week house build. Well, that's a legitimate charge because the nature of the job is completely different to a house build. And it's extraordinary and unexpected and it's sudden demand. But I think if you can find that balance where you maintain your communication with a client and you adjust the order at an appropriate time, that will certainly go a long way to keeping everybody in confidence and them having their trust in you as the PRO.
1: What's interesting here in the Gulf Coast, where we have lots of hurricanes over the years, the people that we're talking about being the customers, people like Belfort, Cotton Logistics, Mooring, these disaster response companies, they're ready to pay for daily service and they're ready to get the right number of toilets. And then every disaster that happens, they go back to the same pro. They're like, bring it.
0: Because they know they'll get the proper response.
1: Yes, They got the proper response and it's all about delivery, right? So it's all about immediate delivery. How fast can you get those 10 toilets here and that 300 yards of fence and the three dumpsters and all they care about is who can get it there in a couple hours, not in a day or two, not whenever. And as long as you're able to be ready to go and work long hours and get it done, you then by doing that, you're building a relationship with somebody who's going to be a customer of yours. the next time there's a disaster, maybe in a different town, but they're going to remember what you did and they're going to call you.
0: I don't think this is peculiar to New Zealand, but one thing we saw during the earthquakes was other companies trying to undercut the price to win work on the ground. And that in their naivety, they thought that by offering a rock-bottom price would give them an opportunity to get units out there, and then they would win future custom. But it's actually counterintuitive, and and I would argue that that's actually a really naive response, because it doesn't improve the service, and it doesn't give the hire the the quality that they need. And nobody wins when you do that. When you cut your throat on price, nobody wins. There's nobody with a large
1: responsibility that's doing that. In my experience in America, it's only the little guys trying to get some work. And they haven't thought this through. They haven't listened to this podcast. They haven't gotten counsel from others. They haven't done it before. And so the small minded person thinks, oh, if I, if I give a cheaper price, I'll get it. Well, those people usually run out of equipment very quickly and end up failing because they're not giving good service. I know there's many companies that hold their price. And if you don't like it, don't worry about it. We know we're going to rent all of our equipment at the right price and they just wait for the next call. And sure enough, you wait 10 minutes, somebody else calls. And in all the disasters, Ida, all these hurricanes, there aren't enough toilets, there aren't enough sinks, there aren't enough dumpsters, there aren't enough generators. And they end up coming in at the rates we're talking about from three and four and five states away.
0: That reminded me of another anecdote I experienced, Dave, working for a national chain with regional depots we'd have the same team at emergency management would ring different branches to try and play them all off against each other on price. And the correct response for the operator there is to appoint one person as the lead liaison with that agency and stop all of that nonsense before it gets out of control.
1: Well, you bring up a very interesting point. There is one guy at United States Services who I've dealt with for, I don't know, 25 years at least, Rollin Kay. Uh, He is the lead point person at this ginormous company, United States Services. One of the reasons is because he's got all the relationships. He's done it so many times, but it's also for the coordination of not crossing those wires and making sure that there's consistency of priority of delivery and also of pricing. And so I encourage all pros to have a disaster response team And oftentimes those people go get in a camper and go live in the disaster for a month or two. So boots on the ground is also a very important thing. You have to go and be there. And then, yes, coordinating everyone's response to ensure that there's consistency is certainly something to be considered. And I would encourage you all to do
0: it. And it makes a lot of sense. And one of the things you'll see in those crunch situations is that the hirer will go beyond the normal local territory for gear. They will look far and wide because they'll get desperate. And if everybody else is competing for that equipment as well, then they'll cast their net even further, won't they? So that liaison is super important. One of the things I'm going to close this week's episode with, Dave, is the impact of the float and large scale events and um, large scale emergency deployments on your utilization rates. And I'll talk through some definitions of that. But before I get into that, I wondered if you had any comments on utilization that that you'd like to share based on your previous experiences.
1: I was able to see your uh, pre-show notes and I think what you're gonna cover in utilization is fantastic. But what I would tell you is the larger your float is with anything, sinks, toilets, anything you're renting, dumpsters, trailers, when you see the opportunity to provide an essential service at a properly priced rate during a disaster and how it impacts the return on your utilization, you can be assured that during a disaster, you're gonna be at 100% utilization, over 100%. And that the returns that you get are gonna to, to encourage you to next time expand your fleet to even have more in the float so that you can be ready to respond with another hundred, another four trailers, another 10 dumpsters. So utilization is also something that that I encourage all pros to carefully consider and wrestle with and really appreciate you covering it, Pete.
0: I'm grateful that you've shared those insights Dave. I will go through some definitions and some examples because for me it's a simple yet a complicated and at the same time overlooked element of being a PRO that utilisation should be one of those key metrics but quite often in my experience people don't know what they're measuring or they measure the wrong thing or they actually gather far too much information for it to be meaningful. So I'll share that when I do the wrap up and record the conclusion for today and maybe we'll come back to it in a future episode as well.
1: Well, so what's interesting about utilization is that most people don't have the data to analyze utilization. So I encourage all pros to have good software where you know your inventory, you know how many times it's been used, you know what you charge for it. And when you have those data points, those are the tools that allow you to analyze the utilization to understand the true nature of your business and how those assets are returning profit and revenue for your business.
0: Is there anything else you want to add or share before we wrap up the call, Dave? We've been talking for 45 minutes. I know it's late evening in Houston. I don't want to ruin the rest of your night. I never know what day it is. I don't know what
1: time it is. It's been a really great conversation, Pete. And 45 minutes seems like just five. So, yeah, I enjoy speaking with you. And um, congratulations on Get flushed. I hope you win the award there in New Zealand for your podcast. And I, I listened to the other one where, where you got interviewed. It was a fantastic episode, you talking about your podcast.
0: I really enjoyed doing that. Actually, we had a lot of fun while we were talking for the podcast awards. After I was nominated, I got an email saying you need to submit a five minute show reel and I'll play that just before the final outro music. I'll let listeners hear what I've put together. The aim of that was to try and capture the essence of the podcast in five minutes, which was, you know, we're 60 plus episodes in now. So it's quite a mission to do that. I'm really grateful once again, Dave, that you spent time with me talking on Get Flushed. And uh, I look forward to meeting up with you again for another episode soon.
1: Very good, Pete. Have a great one.
0: Before we close today, I have to thank Dave once again. He's becoming a regular part of the fabric of the show. I also want to just emphasize again that emergency response really will impose a huge amount of wear and tear on your equipment and your team. You must be really mindful of that and expect there to be a toll. Now, equipment is easily replaced, but people are not. Please remember that these are extraordinary situations well beyond the normal range that most people will experience probably during their lives. The physical toll can be hard, especially if you and your team are also trying to maintain business as usual. And in addition to that, the mental and emotional burden can also take a heavy toll. Even if you think everything is okay at the time, things can come back to haunt you later on. So please make sure that you seek adequate help and support and provide those mechanisms for your staff, even if you don't think you need it and even if they tell you that they don't need it. The third thing that I want to talk about concerns leadership, and it builds really on what Dave said about the leadership conference held by John, Wendy and the rest of the team at Service Court over in Vale last week. In the early part of my career, I was fortunate enough to take part in an extended leadership development program in the UK. And I later went on to develop and teach leadership programs for managers and executives. Now, while a lot of programs I've seen and taught tend to focus on leadership in a crisis or leadership as an aspirational thing that happens in the future, I've learned that actually leadership is happening right now all around us. It's performed in a million ways by everyday folk in routine situations. You don't need a degree, you certainly don't need a big name and you don't need a crisis situation to demonstrate your leadership skills and values. It's all about you and the way you believe, think and behave now. Now, I've also learned that the best learning happens in difficult situations that test our resolve and throw up challenges. But that doesn't mean you have to endure those situations in order to learn from them. It's perfectly possible to learn from what happened to other people, to assess their decisions and behaviours, and to learn from not only their mistakes, but also the really great things that they did at the time. Dave says you allow what you teach, and I'll add to that, you can be critical without criticising. So even if you got it badly wrong, if one of your managers made a really poor decision or one of your staff has let a customer down, don't hide that. Don't run away from it. Don't judge them and don't punish them. It's much better to show your leadership by talking about those things. Reflect on them, learn from them and share the lessons with the team so that it doesn't happen again. And if somebody's done something really, really amazing, talk about that too. Dave also mentioned that I've prepared a segment for this week on utilisation. And when I started to record this part of the show, I realised that actually that element is quite technical. I think we've probably heard enough for today, so I'm going to save that for next week. As usual, I'll close by asking you all to do your bit to support the show by telling a family member, a friend, a colleague or a complete stranger all about Get Flushed and encourage them to listen in. Even better than that, please leave a review on your favourite podcast platform. That will help me broker even more listeners and continue to build the show. If you'd like to make a financial contribution, visit our Patreon page where a modest monthly donation will get you early access to episodes and other bonus material that's not available anywhere else or use the PayPal button on our homepage at getflushed.online. Once again, thank you for your time. I really do appreciate your ears. I've been Pete and you've been listening to Get Flushed, the sanitation podcast brought to you with the support of Sanitrax International. You'll hear the theme tune to the show as usual next, but please keep listening because after that, I've added the five minutes of the show reel, which is my entry for the New Zealand Podcast Awards. Hello, and welcome to Get Flushed, the sanitation podcast. My name's Pete, and I'll be your host. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome the executive director of the PSAI, Carleen Koss, who joined me from Minnesota. Who would have predicted, Carleen, the impact of COVID? It's just been surreal. Well,
1: you know, it, it has been, but as far as who would have predicted, I wouldn't have predicted COVID But as far back as 2015, we had a committee already called our Education Initiative, and that group really was hungry to, you know, change the reputation of portable sanitation globally. And I think, Pete, to be fair to you, your spirit, how you've come into the industry just, you know, open and wanting to learn and wanting to be helpful is getting you that in return.
0: Thank you for your time, Carleen, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Pete. I appreciate you. So I'm on site. I've opened the app on my phone and I'll work through the 15 questions that I use to conduct an inspection. This one's nicely situated in a gravel car park. It's level and it doesn't move if I push it. Is the outside of the cabin clean? I'll be honest, it's not brilliant, there are a few muddy marks on the sides, there's lichen on the roof and spider webs on the hinges and vent. From experience I'd say that the outside hasn't been cleaned in a while, maybe not since it left the yard, so that will be a no and a fail. Is there any damage or graffiti inside the cabin? This is essentially the same check as I did outside, a quick scan of the walls, the tank, the roof, the floor and the back of the door. I'll also check the seat and lid, the toilet roll holder and the sanitizer dispenser. Everything looks good, there's no damage and no graffiti, so that's another pass. Has the inside surfaces been washed? I have to say, this one's pretty dirty. There are cobwebs on the ceiling and vents, there's a layer of dust and dirt on the shelves and some muddy marks on the tank from people's feet. There's also a bit of dribble on the wall and the floor around the urinal, and it smells like a toilet. Now I don't know when this unit was last cleaned, but experience tells me that the driver doesn't wash this unit when he or she comes to empty the tank, so I'm going to say no. When I see toilets in such a disgusting state, I think I'd like to visit the people who work there at home. I'd do that to see how clean their bathrooms are. I wonder what their mums would say if they left pee on the walls and floor, what their wives would say if they left poo smeared on the seat, what their sons and daughters would say if they found a used tampon squashed under the sink, or what they would say if their kids drew a big cock and balls or wrote Jimmy is a fat (laughs) on the back of the bathroom door. I'm guessing that'll blow a fuse, which makes me ask, If it's not acceptable at home, why does it happen in a portable restroom?
1: American 11, are you trying to call?
0: That audio captures the final moments before American Airlines Flight 11 hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center at 8.46am on Tuesday, 11th September 2001. In the days, weeks and months that followed, a huge rescue and recovery operation took place at Ground Zero. My friend Dave Andres took a key role in the mission to supply and service restrooms for the first responders and recovery workers. He arrived on scene the next day, Wednesday the 12th of September, and he's agreed to share his story.
1: We got a call that said the sheriff is going to meet you at your yard and they're going to escort you to ground zero. I was in the lead truck and we got escorted from Keysby, New Jersey down to lower Manhattan and we started slinging toilets. We delivered these toilets and we would watch firemen and police officers and Port Authority people go into them and not come out, like well beyond the time you need. And we then discovered that they were so thankful for a place that was clean, dust free, alone, and they could just decompress. So it's
0: incredible, really, that you're involved from day one.
1: And what's amazing is you have to be ready for any call at any time. You never know what the next call is going to be. And I can't thank you enough, Pete, for asking me to tell this story. I just feel like an old man because it's 20 years ago.